Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we come to you today um, feeling some weariness and brokenness, each one of us, as we just sang, and, and grateful that we can come freely into your presence that through Christ's body broken for us, his blood shed for us, that a way has been opened for us to come into the most holy place and into your presence before your throne, that as we've seen pictured in Revelation, that our prayers rise up like incense before you and that they're held in the golden bowls by the elders at your throne. And so we, we, we don't know the fullness of all of those dynamics and how it works out, and yet we can have the hope and confidence that when we come to you and pray that you hear us, that that your word continues to speak to us. And so as we open it today, we pray that you would speak, that you would soften our hearts, and that today you would breathe hope into us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Revelation. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to chapter 19. That's where we'll continue today. We are going to slow things down now. We've been moving to, you know, taking multiple chapters at a time. And so today we're in 19, 1 to 10. Um, and so, yeah, that's what, if you have a Bible, open it up. Today we get a portrait of the great wedding feast. And, and this, I, as I was reading this and prepping this week, one of the things that has struck me is that it's almost hard to imagine scenes like this right now after the last year that we've all experienced. And one of the great losses of the past year and all of the restrictions of this pandemic we've been walking through globally is the chance for us to feast together. The chance for us to be around people we love and sharing meals and celebrations. And, and so the, the, the ability to grieve together and, and gather for funerals when instead funerals have moved on to Zoom and memorial services and and you know to be able to gather together for weddings and graduation parties and anniversaries and it feels like these these opportunities for grieving and celebration have been minimized over the past year because we haven't had the chance to engage them like we normally would or they've just been passed by entirely um, Alyssa and I right now are talking about that we are we we're looking for forward this may it's hard to believe that I can say this because I don't feel old enough to say this we've this may is our 20th anniversary um and it's, that's a crazy number to me. But, and we want to throw, um, we've talked about, like, let's make this a massive party. And that just doesn't feel realistic yet in May. <laughs> and there's something that we need to grieve in that. That in, as human beings, we need the chance, if we're going to have any wholeness, to be able to celebrate together and grieve together. And I miss family weddings. Now, it's, it's always a little awkward to go to a wedding when you don't know anybody, right? Like when you're an outsider, then you're like, the slideshow just doesn't catch you, and the toasts, the toasts aren't, you know, you're like, I don't, I'm sure that the people that are in the inside understand these stories, but you feel like a little bit of an outsider. But, but a family wedding, 
I know for our, our family, weddings are a huge celebration. It's a time when you get to see cousins and aunts and uncles that, that you miss seeing otherwise, and we feast together. Often it spills into multiple days because if people travel across the country, they'll, they'll, it won't just be the wedding day, but it'll be the day after or maybe the day before. And, and so there's this huge celebration, and there's feasting together and telling stories together and recounting stories and family stories. And, and there's always something of that, that, that you get a, a, a sense of history and connection that you don't get otherwise, because you can sit with your great-grandma or great-grandpa, or you can sit with Uncle Arn, who has all of the stories that, that he can tell from that side of the family. Well, last week, we looked at quick fixes, and how the quick fixes and pursuits that we have in this world fall short, and how indulgence looks good but comes up empty and won't last. But today, we see the opposite side of the same portrait, that there is a feast coming, And like marriage, it's worth waiting for. There's a celebration coming, and it's worth the wait. And so we're in Revelation chapter 19, and this is really a continuation of what started in chapter 17, as we looked last week at 17 and 18. This is the third of four major visions in the book of Revelation as as John was carried away in the spirit. And so last week we saw that he had a vision of the great prostitute and the downfall of Babylon, which is the kingdoms and and, and everything this world has to offer. And so today it continues as it says. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and, and, your brother who, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we've worked through some tough stuff in the book of Revelation, Right? We've worked through some, some powerful imagery and seen apocalyptic imagery that is hard to read and, and should be. It's given to us, and it's, it is strong imagery because it's a warning to us to wake us up and to make us realize who God is and what, what our place is and to turn us in repentance. And so today's passage just comes like a breath of fresh air and relief. And so we're going to look today at this a feast worth waiting for. Three observations for us today. First, 
God alone will bring full justice in the end. You see this, as the passage starts out, it's still in the, again, is the continuation of the judgment over Babylon. And we saw this going back to the bulls of wrath, this proclamation of God's justice in chapters 15 and 16, that, that just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. And, and the proclamation, just are you, O holy one, who who was and who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Just and true are your judgments. And now when chapter 19, as it begins, we get this portrait into heaven at the downfall of Babylon, at the downfall of the kingdoms of this earth, and the great multitude in heaven, which the last time that language, great multitude, was used was back in chapter 7, when it was, it was the portrait of God's people and the great multitude that was gathered at the throne, crying out, salvation belongs to our God. And so here, the, we go back to that image of the great multitude in heaven, crying out, all of God's people, and the implications here are God's people joined with the angelic host, crying out, hallelujah. That's the first time we've heard that word in Revelation. The word hallelujah. This brings us back to the Psalms and these foundations of a call to worship God. And so this whole section is filled with that. It's a call to worship God. That's how it ends. Worship God. It's a command. And all of this is, a, is, is saying in light of the end and in light of what is coming, what is the call and the posture of God's people? It's to worship him. That the greatest purpose in our lives is to worship God and enjoy him forever. And here we get a portrait of what that looks like. But why? Hallelujah. Praise God because salvation and glory and power belong to him. How do we know that salvation and glory and power belong to God? For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Now, we saw last week, immorality here isn't just about sex. This is talking about idolatry and leaving right worship of God behind to worship other things that are less. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants, so he's bringing righteous judgment for those who have who've spilled the blood of his people. And so once more, they cry out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Then the angelic host cries, cries out, they fall down and worship God, amen, hallelujah. And a voice comes from the throne, and we don't know whose voice this is. It could be the angels who are near the throne, it could be the voice of Jesus calling us to worship God, but the, this call, praise God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. And so it begins by saying, it's a call to worship God as we look ahead to the end of all things. Why? Because in the midst of the frightening and fearful imagery of judgment, what we see is that God is true and just, and that full justice will come. This is something we cannot imagine right now. Um, this past week it was the first time that I have traveled since last February, and meaning a year ago since the pandemic began in March. And I was in Minneapolis for board meetings for our denomination, and I arrived Monday night, and Tuesday, was awfully tense in that city. I don't feel like I even need to explain to you why it was tense, unless you've been living under a rock. Like, this was tense because that after, and Tuesday afternoon, when we found out that the jury had made a quick decision in the, in the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd, everything for us stopped. We found out that when the verdict was going to be announced, and so the whole board shut down our meetings, spent, spent some time praying together for that city and our nation, for the families that, of, of those involved. 
And then it was announced that Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts. And what followed felt like a collective exhale. Of Now, and I think in the days following, even that day following, seeing the reaction, it's been hard to navigate through and to wade through. And I'm, I, I think most of us probably have some kind of a mix of emotions watching this. Was it, was it justice? Well, there's, there's something of justice here. Was it accountability? For sure. But it's hard to navigate, and we don't have answers for this. We aren't created with the capacity to, to, as human beings to be able to sort all this out. What is justice for a man's life taken? And, and when our brother's blood cries out from the ground, is there any sentence that will restore things and make things right? Now, I can't put my hope fully in any human institution for the perfect implementation of justice. Our, we've seen too often that, it, that things will fall short and keep calling for it, sure, but, but can't find my hope in it. And on top of that, there's disagreement, and I think that this is one of the hard things, is that even within, within the church, there's, and certainly within our nation, there are disagreements on what will even make all things right, and what justice means, and what it looks like. And I, had, I have friends who are pastors who put out something about justice, and, uh, about justice or accountability, and, and had others then coming in and trying to define justice, and whether it's narrow or broad or how we think about these things. And, and, and so this is one of the difficult things is the reality that when we look at this, that a man is dead, and he's only one case. I think we can agree that something needs to happen here, that, that reform is needed within our policing, but what should that look like, and how do we sort that out? And, and there's a reality that too often when we get into these difficult questions and difficult conversations that are happening in a broader level nationally, certainly within our city, is that, that too often the, the ethnic and political and philosophical divides of our nation have infected the mindsets of Christians that have forced us into binary categories that scripture does not embrace. That, that you are either pro or anti-police. That you are either pro or anti-reparations, that you are either pro or anti-wearing a mask, that you are either pro or anti-vaccines, that we, we get forced into these binaries, and, and life is not that simple. James Davison Hunter, a sociologist at the University of Virginia, said, said politics is always the crudest simplification of public life. And so we need to realize and see through some of these things and not take the bait that, that too often we've less, lost our sense of calling that we see throughout Scripture, that, that God's people are sojourners and exiles, and, and we've lost our own theology of the Imago Dei. The, the image and likeness of God dwells within every person, and that is what gives us inherent dignity and value and worth, and that we need to see the reflections of God's glory in all people and in every person and that our ultimate salvation is not just from the circumstances that surround us, but, but finding our identity in Christ rather than this world's categories and embracing the fullness of God's presence in Christ. And we've just seen this. In chapters 15 and 16, we see God, that God's justice is coming in its fullness in the bowls of wrath. We saw it in 17 and 18 last week that Babylon will fall. And, and now as the saints of God see the smoldering ruins of the kingdoms of this world and, and they worship God for it. Because what it means is that all injustice has met its end. And it's met it perfectly. 
that the blood of God's people will be avenged in the end. And so as they cry out, hallelujah, it's, it's, they're saying, praise God, because justice has come. And so that hope of true justice should infuse us as God's people with the courage to call for justice now, but also the freedom from despair of expecting that it's going to come in its fullness through human institutions. Praise God that salvation belongs to him. Praise God that he is our hope for justice. Praise God that the binaries of human rationale can't capture God's work in its fullness. And praise God that, that injustice and indulgence will smolder in the end. So church, we have much to hope for. And that should shape everything we do now and give us the freedom to be able to engage in the issues that face us in our, in our lives more fully. So that's first. It's a feast worth waiting for, that God alone will bring full justice in the end. And second, we will celebrate at the great wedding feast. And so it goes on in verses 6 to 8 to describe this, that this great multitude, and they have a voice together like the sound of, of many waters and the sound of peals of thunder. This is language that's often used of God's voice. And so it's now saying that the, the roar of his people and his creatures are, are rising up to worship him, crying out hallelujah, because the Lord God the Almighty reigns. And so let's rejoice, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so again, this is in direct contrast with what's preceded, with the, the prostitute of Babylon saying, saying that, that we can look for quick fixes and indulgence in this, in this life, but, but it comes up empty and won't last, but it's worth waiting for what will come in the end. And the language of a wedding is not accidental here. This is language that appears all through Scripture from the very beginning. And so we, we see this as God forms his people in Exodus, as he brings his people out of Egypt and in, brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And, and the language of the covenant in Exodus 19 is a marriage relationship. It's an invitation. God says, I'll move in with you. You'll be my treasured possession among all the people of the earth. You'll, you'll be my people and I will be your God. And from all the nations, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. And, and so they, he invites them into a covenant relationship. It's a proposal. The elders of the people gather together and they say, yes, we would like this to happen. And so they talk about the boundaries of this covenant commitment and agree together to enter into this covenant relationship. And so that language then is why when you get to the prophets, they talk about Israel falling into idolatry and worshiping false gods. And the language of it is adultery. God is saying, you've cheated on me. You've gone and chased after these other gods, these other systems, these other re realities, and these other things to worship. You've left me behind, and you've broken our covenant relationship. But God continues to pursue his people. Eventually, they get sent into exile. And you see the call back that, they look, that, that when Isaiah looks ahead to the restoration of God's people, we hear the echoes of what we see in its fullness in Revelation 19. And so it says in, in Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up death on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. 
It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so Isaiah looked ahead to this while people were in exile in true physical Babylon and looked ahead to this time when God would bring a full restoration for his people and they would celebrate in a wedding feast. And the imagery here, again, it's, it's what we experience in weddings so often that it's the best of wine that is served. It's the best of meats that are served as you come together in this feast and celebration. And this is the portrait of what it looks like to be in God's presence. We miss that so often. We, we think that, I don't think we have a very clear picture of eternity. And one of the things I'm excited about with the next several weeks as we walk through the end of Revelation is it gives us a clear portrait of eternity. And I think for a lot of Christians, we, we, we think about eternity in very vague terms. We're really kind of Gnostic about it, meaning that we don't think it's going to be physical. We think it's just going to be this weird spiritual reality with kind of like a soft focus lens where nothing is real and we're just kind of there and people are like, I don't know. When I've heard people talk about, you know, I don't know, isn't heaven going to be boring? I don't, it's a wedding celebration. It's a feast. The wine that we're served, we've never tasted anything that will touch it. The food that we are served, there's nothing here that's going to compare. It's a banquet and a return as God gathers his people together. Jesus taught about the wedding banquet, and we'll see this. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. But in Luke 14, he looked ahead and used the same language and said, there's, the wedding banquet is coming. And, and there's an invitation to us. The question, are we going to be at the banquet? The church used this language in, in the description of Christ's relationship to the church. And this is a passage that people usually steer away from because they're scared of what it means for relationships. But, but you need to hear the theology that's underneath this in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul talks about to husbands and wives, and he, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and, and as the church submits herself to Christ. And then he goes on to say, and I think this is why people avoid this passage, because we're like, we don't like to submit. And I understand, um, without getting into all the dynamics of what that means in a marriage relationship today, look at the call to husbands, because I think that gets lost. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the image of Christ's relationship to his church. That if you're in the church, you are in the bride of Christ. Now, I, I know sometimes we get these metaphors, I think there's, especially guys, I think sometimes they're like, I don't know what that means, and I don't know if I'm, I'm not really a bride. <laughs> guys, you got to get over it. This is, we do the same thing when, in Galatians 4, when Paul says that we are all sons of God through what Christ has done for us. And we soften that, and we go, well, ladies are like, I don't know, why can't I be a daughter of God? You are. But what it's saying is there's implications there of the inheritance of the promise to Abraham that is extended to all God's people. And culturally at the time, that means that in Christ, whether male or female, we are all sons and, and we receive the inheritance. And so we lose the imagery and we lose the metaphor if we soften the language. 
It's saying, male, female, son or daughter of the king, you are all worthy and now inheritors of the great inheritance that has been given through Abraham. We are all sons of God. And here, if we, if we, if we get uncomfortable with the language of like, I don't know if I'm the bride, get over it because you don't want to be outside of this. This is saying the church collectively is the bride of Christ. And do you hear the language here? This is that Jesus has given himself up for his bride as the bridegroom, that Jesus has purified and cleansed the church with the washing of water with his word, that he's the one that makes us pure. And so the image of a wedding here is what we need to understand because we still see this, that a bride enters the room clothed in white, and, and, she, and, and so that is where everybody's attention turns. And here it's saying that happens because of what Christ has done. And so we are the bride of Christ. We are all sons. We are all the bride. It takes a little bit of holy imagination. But this is what the Spirit is telling us through Scripture. And now all that Scripture has anticipated in Revelation 19, we're seeing a portrait of it coming to its fullness, the imagery from the beginning. And one commentator said here, we can scarcely imagine the glory of that wedding day. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom. Never has a man sacrificed more for his beloved. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride. Never has a father more wealthy planned a bigger feast. Never has a more noble son honored his father in everything. Never has a man treated his bride to be more appropriately. Never has a more powerful pledge like an engagement ring been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to this bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. And so it describes here that the church is clothed in white linen and and that that fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, the witness of Scripture is clear here that we we are saved by God's work alone. It's by God's grace alone and we respond in faith and it's through faith alone and Christ alone that we experience our salvation. But don't lose that our lives still matter to God. That we're clothed in in our righteous deeds so the Spirit of God renews us and, and then our lives will look like it and we'll bear the fruit of the Spirit keeping with our repentance. And so this is the portrait. The portrait of eternity and our entrance into eternity is pictured as a wedding. Now again, this is something that we have an image for. A wedding is one of the only, culturally, one of the only covenants we bear witness to anymore. Whenever I do a wedding rehearsal, uh, the wedding rehearsal, I really get the opportunity to talk about what a wedding is. And so the way that I do wedding rehearsals, I've had a chance to do weddings for some, some of you at Redemption Hill. And I'll always begin by getting everybody in their spots. And so you get everybody lined up, figure out how the stage is gonna be arranged. And, and, and of course, the bride and groom are in the center. And then you have the attendants, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids that are lined up. And, and then we have the parents and sometimes grandparents seated where they're going to sit near the front. And, and there, it's the, always the discussion of like, are you going to do a bride side and a groom side? And you have to work all the, out all the dynamics. But once people are in place, I, I take the opportunity to explain what's happening because I don't think we always understand all the symbolism. That what you have is people come, two individuals coming together to join their lives together before God and before witnesses, that two become one. This is the imagery from Genesis chapter two, from the beginning, that two become one flesh. It's graphic and physical imagery. The Bible doesn't shirk away from the reality of the beauty of sex, but it's also imagery to say, you hear what Adam says to to the woman. He says, ah, finally, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. It's saying that you become family in marriage. Your, Your lives are joined 
the attendance. Usually, for us, I think, culturally, attendants are just people that were like, ah, you've been my friend for a while, or you're my sister, you're my brother. Uh, you know, it's kind of like, well, I guess you're, you've got to be. And sometimes there's like all kinds of pressure and drama and who's going to stand up in that spot. But what's happening in a wedding ceremony is that people are witnessing the ratification of a covenant between two individuals. And the attendants are standing with the couple as witnesses to that covenant. And their relationship with the couple, I always challenge them, begins on that day. I think we have a tendency to think of it, I'll just speak for guys, I know guys have, they'll give guys a hard time, like the single guys will be like, well, we've lost our friend. But you haven't, what you've done is your friend's life just changed forever, and now you are a witness of that covenant, and by standing with them, you're supporting the joining of their lives together, and you are committing to that couple that you will remind them that you were there that day. The parents get to sit and observe, but it's the attendants who are the ones who are responsible to uphold that covenant or help the couple uphold that covenant they've made. And when the bride enters, so often she's wearing a white gown because it's showing this, this purity as she comes to her husband as he waits at the front for her. And so this is the imagery that we have. This is why, why the call to husbands is so, is, so, is so costly and such a high calling in Ephesians 5 to say, husbands, you now have a calling to reflect Christ to your wife and to lay yourself down for her flourishing. Because this is what Christ has done for us. And so this is the portrait. And now I can remember, and, and I get a unique view on a lot of this as a pastor, because I stand at the front and I get to watch it all play out and then, as the bride and groom face each other, I get to see the bride and groom facing each other in front of me with their parents and grandparents and friends and family behind them. Now, with an iPad, I often try to sneak a picture of it. Like, <laughs> because it's just nobody captures that view of the wedding. Um, but it's, it's something beautiful. And, and, and it's still, I mean, it, I also will tell people, and this is true, like, the bride becomes the focal point of everything that happens in a wedding. As soon as the doors open for the bride and the processional, what happens? Everybody stands. Somebody's listening to me today. Thank you. <laughs> everybody stands up, and everybody's attention turns to the back of the room as the bride comes in. And as she passes them, what do they do? Well, they go from looking at the back of the room to following with the bride until she's at the front. I tell the attendants, you shift your body posture. The bride is the focal point of this whole thing. And what we're seeing in Revelation 19 is the arrival and delivery of the church to Christ in the end and the feast that comes. I messed things up when I got married, which, as I told you, was almost 20 years ago. <laughs> and, um, and when Alyssa came in, I like, couldn't bring myself to look up because I, I just couldn't believe the moment that I was in the middle of. And I didn't actually look her in the face until they said, turn to each other so you can say your vows. <laughs> And we tried to memorize our vows, which I will tell you, I tell couples, don't ever do this. <laughs> if you want to read your vows, I usually just say, just repeat after me. It's going to go better. Because when that happened, I can remember standing and like kind of looking at my feet and looking around. And then we turned and faced and I looked up and I just lost it. <laughs> and I couldn't remember anything. And she had, had, she had a copy in her pocket, or she didn't have a pocket, but she had a copy somehow. <laughs> She handed me, a, somehow, magically, she handed me a copy of our vows, and I tried to, like, read through my tears, and I think we got married. <laughs> I'm sure I committed something, 
but this is like, but I, it, that moment and the emotion that washed over me as the bridegroom and seeing her in her dress and, and knowing the gravity of the moment, you've got to understand the tenderness and the love and the self-sacrifice and the, the glory that Christ has given us is greater than anything we can have a glimpse of here. But that moment is coming. The day is coming. And we look ahead to it. And this tells us, though, that, that we're arrayed in the, in the righteous deeds of the saints are the fine linen. So what we do and how we live our lives here is essential. And, and we have to understand this because our world will tell us that the church's work is not essential. It could be because they're trying to force things into the binaries like we talked about a few minutes ago. But it also, I mean, we've seen this over the last year. The, the most recent announcements in D.C., it's, it's amazing to me because there's the, the announcement that came a couple weeks ago now about the change in restrictions that's coming on May 1st. And what did they mention? Museums reopening at 25% capacity. Public pools reopening and every mom in D.C. rejoiced. <laughs> like... Movie theaters, retail, restaurants, like all of these things that are mentioned, and these are good things that, that we need to figure out. I mean, reopening is going to be a mess, and people are going to have all kinds of opinions, but eventually life has to begin to reopen. But there was no mention of churches and houses of worship. Not a word. Completely, I don't, it, that's not just oversight. It's not seen as essential. And listen, as a church, there is lots of good work that we can do and lots of good things we can do and that we are doing as a church and we're involved in as a church and that our community groups lead us into as a church that our city will celebrate until we make it about Jesus. But we also need to realize that there are lots of good things that the church can join in and be co-belligerents in and be partners in for good work in our city to seek the welfare of our city rightly. But only the church of Jesus Christ has the message of Jesus Christ. Only the church has the gospel. Only the church has the hope that we can actually be invited to and join the bridegroom in the end as Christ has laid himself down for us. And so we can't, can't shrink back. There, they will be worth it in the end, and we are, there is essential work for us as a church to be able to do. Now, we're going to be measured. This isn't saying, like, throw off your masks and pretend that this, the pandemic doesn't exist. But this is saying, don't lose the reality that the church's work and your work as a Christian is essential just because it's not seen and appreciated in the city that we live in. All right, third, and finally, it's a feast worth waiting. God alone will bring full justice in the end. We will celebrate at the great wedding feast. And third, God's promises are true. And so look what it says in verses 9 and 10. The angel said to me, write this. So it's a command to John to write. There's only, this only happens a few times in Revelation. Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So John fell down at his feet to worship him, but the, the angel said to him, stop it. You must not do that. I'm just a fellow servant with you. The language here is that I'm just a, a slave of righteousness, a slave of Jesus with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's saying, don't, don't fall down at me. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so God's promises are true. The, the question that comes to us in this passage is, will you be there? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Will you be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Now, we've got to understand that this 
there's more to what God calls us to in this language of marriage than just formality and religiosity. I had heard one pastor say it this way. He said, said we get, we, sometimes we treat God and treat Christianity that way, like with formality and religiosity, and don't give him our heart. And so again, imagine this in the context of marriage. I, as I heard one pastor say, imagine that a, that a man is married and he has a spouse, but really just looks at it as legal arrangement, but he spends all of his time with another woman, takes trips, shares meals, talks about life, is there every evening, and then he comes home, and how do you think his wife would respond? I can think of a lot of language I probably shouldn't use in the pulpit today, <laughs> and how my wife would respond. <laughs> and we would say, like, what, what a bum. Like, that's not what marriage is. And he might defend himself and say, hey, I work, and I pay bills, and I... And I, you know, we are legally married, so what are you looking for? But, but the problem is that she doesn't have his heart. And often, this is what we do. And we wonder why our lives feel spiritually dry and empty. But how often would we say, like, hey, I've, I've been baptized. I, I take communion. I've taken on the name of Christ in baptism, I believe, and I go to church. I, I give to the ministry, and maybe it's not a full tithe, but I, I give a little bit, what I've got left over. I pray. I follow the Ten Commandments. So what's the big deal? God wants our hearts. The language of marriage shows us that this isn't about just keeping the rules or about the legality of things, that it's a question of what drives your passions, what gets you excited, what drives your imagination, what gives you hope. And we can be friends with the good gifts that God gives us and passionate friends with good causes, but if we go to bed with them and find our identity in anything other than Christ, it will destroy us because they're fatal attractions. And so this is our hope, that we have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. He laid himself down. The reason Jesus is called a lamb in Revelation, we'll see the lion side. This, remember Revelation 5, that, that, that the angel said, look, it's the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the root of David. And John looked, turned looking to expect a king, and he looked and he saw one before him that was like a lamb who had been slain. The reason Jesus is called a lamb throughout Revelation is because it's his sacrifice in our place for our sin on the cross when he laid himself down to pay the debt that we owe in our sin to free us because of his great love for us. That is our only hope in the end. And so the question, will you be at the feast of the lamb, is have you embraced the fullness of Christ's work on your behalf and have you given your heart and your life to him? Jesus taught about this in Luke chapter 14. It's an extended parable, but I think it's worth reading today briefly. He talked about the great banquet, and he said, he, said to the, he was at a, a feast, and he, he said to the man who invited him, which Jesus as a dinner guest was always not what they expected. <laughs> he said, when you give a dinner, a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> like, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I think Jesus wasn't concerned about justice in our world. When one of these who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. The other said, I've bought five yoke of oxen 
and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges, compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus looked ahead to the wedding feast and he spoke to his people with great clarity here. It's, now look who the master reaches out to. Now there were these, those invited but look at who he reaches out to. It's not, it's not the elite. It's not who we'd expect for a banquet. He's more concerned that the house gets filled than he is with the prestige of those who fill it. So he goes out and grabs the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, saying, go out to the highways, make it happen so that we fill this up. Because the people that he had invited to the feast, those who were within and thought they were part of God's people, the religious elite, they were instead the, the people that had all the excuses for why they didn't have time to come to the banquet. How often do we make excuses for why we can't celebrate with God in his presence? Why we can't enjoy the good things that God has given us in his presence? The excuses. I just bought a field. <laughs> Who buys a property without ever going to see it? That's ridiculous. Well, I just bought some oxen. Five yoke of oxen, what a, a flimsy excuse. Who buys 20,000 pounds of livestock without knowing what their capabilities are going to be? I just got married. This one appeals to affections. Like, listen, there, there's one reason that people turned away from the feast, and there's one reason that some of you won't embrace Christ and that people won't embrace coming to the eternal feast of God's kingdom. The reason is simple. It's because they don't want to be there. They have no appetite for Jesus' presence, and other things matter more. This is the message of the fall of Babylon and the wedding feast. That if our affections get tied up more in the things of this world, those things are going to pass away. The glory of humanity is like the grass of the field. It's going to wither, it's going to fade, and God's word will stand forever. But there's still room. I love that in Jesus' story. There's still room. Go out and make sure that people come in. I want my house to be filled. Now, in the original context, this is saying that the religious people of the time had rejected Christ, and so he's saying, we're going to go out to the Gentiles, and I thank God for that, because that means that, that Jesus wants me at his feast. And he's compelling them to come, not necessarily forcing, it's not coercion, but it's taking some extra convincing, the same way that my kids sometimes take some convincing to come to the dinner table. But, but Jesus' hearers here had a double invitation. They, we have the fullness of the witness of Scripture. God's word is true, as the angel says in Revelation 19. And now his presence. So, but when the day came for the feast, the reality is that too many people will love this world more than they love Christ himself. And so the proclamation, I love this, that you've got the one guy at the table when, when, Jesus, <laughs> when Jesus says in that, in that parable, he says, hey, don't invite your friends, but invite people that can't repay you to when, you when you throw a feast. And some guy at the table's like, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. <laughs> She's like, this is, the, this is empty religious jargon. This is like, if we go back to the wedding imagery, this is when you have that perpetual playboy uncle that sleeps around saying, marriage is great, cheers to you. So this is the question for us today. We've got a portrait of the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
and saying that, that God's people will be, will be washed in the water of God's word as Christ sanctifies us. That it'll show up in our lives in righteous deeds as we are clothed in the fine linen of them. The question is, is your heart so captured by Christ that you want to be a part of the bride on that day? Is your hope set in the future when we will see Christ, God's justice in fullness and are you living now in light of your betrothal to our king? I can't wait until the restrictions are lifted more and we can feast together again when we come together and have a sense of freedom and abandon to be in each other's presence and give each other hugs. And our family is very kissy. I can't wait to be able to hug and kiss aunts and uncles and, and to be able to be physically present together in family gatherings. I can't wait to be able to do that as a church, the time when we're finally able to be physically all gathered together and share the Lord's Supper together, which is a moment where we look ahead to this ultimate feast, when we can have picnics together and feasts together and events together and be gathered together more consistently and regularly in community group. And do you realize, like, this is part of why we have such a great theology of food at Redemption Hill and why every community group in, in the before times, we, <laughs> we had a meal together. And made that an essential part of our gathering because in sharing a meal together, we're celebrating because the gospel is a celebration. It's a party and we get too caught up in our own despair sometimes and, and kick the dirt and wonder whether it's all worth it. And we need to remember, no, this is a celebration that we get to join in together. And, and I may regret this, but, but I'm even ready to say that at the next wedding I go to, I won't take the dancing for granted. Because usually I'm a guy that's very happy to watch everybody else enjoy that. But, like, I don't know. I have a lot of, of catch-up time to do because I don't know how to do the cha-cha or the electric slide or the wobble. But I, I'm ready. I'm ready. If we could have a wedding right now, I'm going to need your help and your grace <laughs> and kindness extended to me. And I'm going to try to learn how to dance some. But... Listen, the night is dark and the waiting is hard, but press on, church. We've got a feast that's worth waiting for. God's going to bring the fullness of justice. No, we're not going to see it now. And there's moments when it'll feel like relief, but we're not going to see the fullness now. We'll celebrate, though. There's a feast coming, and God's promises are true the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Time rolls wearily along now, just now, apparently, and some hearts grow weary and sad. But let us take courage. The morning comes as well as the night, and there are good days not so far off, so we have sometimes fancied. And some of us may yet live to see, see times which will make us cry, Lord, now let's, let your servants depart in peace, for our eyes have seen your salvation." Whether we live till Christ comes again or whether we fall asleep in him, many of us know that we shall sit down at the great wedding feast in the, day, in the end of days. And we shall partake of the supper of the Lamb in the day of his joy and glory. And we are looking across the blackness and darkness of the centuries into that promised millennial age wherein we shall rejoice with our Lord with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Father, some of us are caught in the darkness of our day so deeply that it's almost impossible to imagine the light of the joy of the glory of a wedding feast. Would you help us? 
some of us are so caught in empty religiosity and in trying to earn your approval and your favor that we've undercut that you want our hearts and our love. So would you forgive us? And Father, some have trouble seeing and believing that your word is true and that a feast is coming. The quick fixes of attachments in our world now and seeing this world as the ultimate and the only is, is too overwhelming and distracting. So I pray that they would hear your, your voice calling. I pray that they would feel the presence of your spirit moving in their hearts. And that they would see that Christ has laid himself down for our good and for our hope. Father, for each of us, would you turn our hearts Set our affections on the bridegroom alone. And give us a spark of joy and light as we look ahead to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.